you got your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to Job. God has a, a lot to say to us through this book. As we've been working our way through Job, we're still in the first of three discourses between Job and his friends. So each discourse begins uh, with Eliphaz, and then the other two fellows take a turn. And then toward the end of the book, a guy named Elihu, he gives a big old long speech. The essence of all the comfort or encouragement of his friends, I think, falls along the lines of a concept that somehow, sometimes we think we have to defend God. And I think Job doesn't fall into that trap. Nowhere in the Bible does God say, hey, I need your defense. Make sure you're defending me. God's able to defend himself. Typically, when we try to defend God, we, we might say things that sound good. And the theology might not be too bad, but the way we use the theology makes it all wrong. And that's what Job's friends do. That's why when we read through their, their remarks, we look at it and we go, oh, that's not so bad. He, you know, he's telling them to seek the Lord or he's, he's, in, he's trying to encourage them in this or he's trying to encourage them in that. But the reality is there's no love behind anything that they do. There's a lot of harshness and an attitude from them that they need to somehow uh, um, justify what has happened in Job's life in a way that makes sense to them. You could call it... Uh, Retributive justice. The concept of retributive justice is that when somebody does evil, God gets them. When somebody does good, God blesses them. The problem is not in that theology. The problem in that theology is timing. Because sometimes the wicked don't run into their judgment until they stand before their maker and the idea that we can judge or justify suffering that we see around us by the concept that well that's a wicked place and we all probably found ourselves in it you guys remember uh, when new orleans got flooded or maybe you remember other natural disasters that took place and we start thinking well you know that's you know, maybe that's God's judgment. I guess that's an evil place or a wicked place. Just so we can make sure everybody understands. There is not a place on earth that isn't a wicked place or an evil place. There's not a person walking on earth that's not a sinner guilty of offending the God of the universe. Nowhere is there someone walking on earth that doesn't deserve God's judgment. So for us to make the concept or the idea, when we see suffering, that this is God's hand uh, of judgment. That's what the problem is with Job's friends. They're defending God, saying, well, if this happened to you, Job, then you did something wrong. You did something to deserve this. Listen to what the Bible says. The rain falls. Yeah. On the wicked and the righteous, right? The rain falls on everybody. God's judgment does come. 
But usually what we see about God's judgment is a long period of long suffering while God waits and provides opportunity for repentance. We see what Job understood and why God said, Job's my champion, because Job understood he had a relationship with God, not a religion. Job understood in his relationship with God that God was just, but he was also merciful, that God had grace, that God loved him. That God was long-suffering. And ultimately, here's what Job knows above all things. And you'll see it all the way through the book. He knows, no matter what, God is in control. God is sovereign. He didn't look away and something happened to Job. He's in control. That's a major part of theology, the concept of of how we relate to the God of the universe. So last time we saw Eliphaz's comment and Job's response. And you remember Eliphaz came to him with uh, softly, right? He, he didn't come right out banging. That's over now. And a lot of times we look at, and we got to keep in mind, we're going to go 42 chapters. So we're going to go through a lot of speeches from these guys. And each one of their speeches is going to get more aggressive. So, so when you say, well, in the beginning, well, their heart doesn't look too bad. Well, just hang on. Because this all happened in, in a moment. It don't take you long to read it all. You get what I'm saying? So this is happening bang, 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 bang. So their heart will be revealed. Don't worry. Every one of them is angry and frustrated because they don't have an answer to the question of why. And for those of you who are hanging on for an answer to the question of why, don't. Because he's not going to answer it. When you get to the end of the book, God's going to say, I'm God. I know what I'm doing. You either trust me or you don't. But he never tells them why. So Job's wrestling with why, but all the while Job's wrestling with why... God says Job never sinned with his lips. And God says that Job, in chapter 42, God says, Job rightly represented me in my heart. And his friends wrongly represented me in my heart. So when we go through, it's not a question of, well, that doesn't sound right. This is what God said. God said, Job had it right. He didn't sin. And Job's friends had it wrong, and they needed to hope Job would pray for him at the end, or God was going to put on them what he put on Job. So, keep that in mind as we go. Now, right after Job finishes, we see Job finish at the end of chapter 7, and and he is acknowledging in verse 21 of chapter 7, Why then do you not pardon my transgression, take away my iniquity, For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me diligently, but I will no longer be. Job's pretty sure he's going to die. It's all over. He's hoping that God will forgive his sin. You know, Job never once says, I'm not a sinner. He just says, I didn't do something wicked. I I, I didn't do something that brought all this on. I'm no, no more of a sinner than anybody else. So that's an important concept for people to grasp. Well, the Bible tells in chapter 8, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered, so right after Job finishes, so remember when we read chapter 1 of Job and his problems came, bam, bam, bam. 
And then chapter 2, another set of problems. Bam, bam, bam. And his friends show up in seven days of silence. And when the silence stops, this goes. Boom, 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 boom. There's no days in between. Boom, 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 boom. Comment, comment. As soon as Job finishes, somebody else jumps on. So Job just finished. Uh, Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you speak these things and the words of your mouth like a strong wind? Well, that's pretty kind, huh? Man, you are a bunch of hot air. That's what he's saying. What a bunch of hot air. So the first guy, Eliah has, he, he comes to him and he says, Look, this is the kind of, of judge God is. When you do something wrong, God immediately judges it. Now, we know that's not true. But that was the concept that Eliah has had. Bildad's concept is different. He's good. His argument is going to be from history. Reasoning from history. What he sees in nature. What he sees in history. And his idea is that concept of retributive justice. That you do evil and God's going to bring justice. God's going to get you. Cause and effect. We talked about it last time. Reaping and sowing. Now, is reaping and sowing true? Sure, it's true. The problem is timing. Just because you see something bad happen in somebody's life doesn't mean that was something they sowed. Over a lifetime, if you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. You're lost. If you sow to the Spirit, you reap everlasting life. That's what the Scripture is talking about when it talks about sowing and reaping. But sometimes we put that on people's behavior and we use that to justify the bad things in their life or the good things in their life. But that's not necessarily the heart of God. Bildad said, you're full of hot air. Does God subvert judgment? Or does the Almighty pervert His justice? The subvert and pervert are the same words. Does God twist His judgment? Does the Almighty twist Justice. He's he's saying, look, you're being judged. You're being judged by what you did. There's just one problem with his logic, right? You guys remember how the book began. In all the world, there was no one like Job, who was upright and blameless and righteous before God. So all these guys are saying, you know, Job, there has to be a problem. Look what they say, the very next verse. If your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression." Well, that's pretty comforting when you lost ten kids, right? Well, your kids are a bunch of sinners and God judged them. They're not properly representing God. You guys remember last time I talked to you about, that's a big issue, wrongly representing God. You remember Moses, why didn't he get to go to the promised land? Because he misrepresented God, right? The children of Israel were complaining and Moses was fed up with them. And he goes over to him, and the Lord had told him, speak to the rock and water will come out of the rock. God never said, I'm mad at these people, be angry at these people. God never said that. He said, speak to the rock. Moses walks over to the rock and says, must we, so he puts himself in the, like he's part of the equation, bring you rebellious people water from this rock, and then he hits it. Bam! And water comes out. So that means God wasn't mad at the people. Even though Moses did it wrong, water came out so the people could have water. But then God said to Moses, Hey, why are you representing me as angry at the people? 
I never told you I was angry at the people. And I told you to speak to the rock. Because you misrepresented me, you're not going into the promised land. You're going to die outside like everybody else from that generation. So when we come to the concept of representing God, the point in Scripture is, be very careful how you represent Him. Be very careful when you walk up to somebody and says, you know, the Lord has told me that you... Be careful. I tell people all the time, the Word of God is a mirror. Not typically a flashlight. The Word of God is for me to consider my sin, my problem, my relationship with God, long before I worry about somebody else's. What is it that Jesus said? Before you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye, do what? Take the log out of your own. So he's saying, you got to deal with your own relationship with me before you deal with somebody else's. And if you deal with your own relationship first before you deal with somebody else's, then you're going to have gentleness, meekness, right? If you had to dig something out of your own eye, how do you think you're going to behave if you got to get something out of somebody else's? A little more gentle? Because you're like, oh, I know how this feels. We want to, we want to understand. That's what God is, is declaring to us through His Word. So He says, if you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely He would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. So basically what you have from all of Job's friends, which God declares to be wrong, is prosperity doctrine. Prosperity doctrine says, if you're pure, holy, you have a right walk with God, then God's going to bless you, give you lots of money, make sure you have everything that you want. That's what he's saying to him. He says, look, if you'll earnestly seek God, what is Job doing on the ash heap? What was that whole thing? What is the whole going in mourning, sitting on the ash heap, scraping himself with a potsherd? What was that called? Seeking the Lord in sackcloth. And ashes. Coming before the Lord in humility, in your despair, in your distress, looking for the Lord. And and while he's in that place, even though he's frustrated and he doesn't understand what's going on, his friends are coming to him and saying, Well, look, if you were pure, if you were really holy, if you were really righteous, who told us Job was righteous? God. So Bildad really don't have a lot to say about that. Bildad don't quite have the concept down. He says, though your beginning was small, your latter end will increase abundantly. You know what I love that God does even through people who don't got it right? He prophesies. What's going to happen to Job at the end of the story? He's going to have double everything he had. So is his end going to increase greater than his beginning? The beginning was small, but the end is going to increase. So he, he really prophesies. He, he says something that's true. And a lot of the things he says are good things. Good things that he's laying out. But the heart, the application, the way he's putting it together. Man, that's, that's, that's not right. God's justice is not always swift and immediate. Suffering does not always, or suffering, his thought was suffering does not. Come upon the innocent. 
So that Bildad would declare himself innocent because he hasn't suffered. But the Bible says there are none. No, not one is righteous. So you have a, a religiosity that's going on in the hearts of the people. Attitude that they have. Suffering, according to Bildad, is someone getting what they deserve. You deserve it, Job. You need to repent. Ask God for forgiveness. Well, the last chapter, Job said, tell me what to repent from, and I'll do it. Tell me my sin. Usually when you rebuke a brother, you rebuke them with something you know they've done. It's pointless to rebuke a person for an imaginary sin. To come up to somebody and say, well, you know, I'm pretty sure there's sin in your camp. So, you need to get squared away. When the Bible rebukes us, it rebukes us for known areas of sin. When God rebuked the Pharisees, He didn't say, Woe to you Pharisees, for I'm not going to tell you what you're doing wrong, but, but you're doing something wrong. There's no question what the Pharisees were doing wrong. Woe to you, Chorazim. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the works that had been done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So when there's a rebuke, usually the sin is is uh, named. You guys get what I'm saying? So he doesn't know what he should repent from, but he says he should repent. In verse 8, he tells them, look to the sages of the past. Look to the wise guys from days gone by. Inquire, please, of the former age. And consider the things that were discovered by their fathers. Think back to all those guys who have gone before us. Because they could tell you, you're messed up. They don't agree with the things you're saying, Job. They would agree with me. That's the argument that Bill Dad's making. For Then he gives, I love it when people do self-defeating arguments. You guys know what a self-defeating argument is? I'm going to show you one right now. Self-defeating For we were born yesterday and know nothing. Then why are you talking to me, Bildad? You get what I'm saying? We were born yesterday and we don't know anything. Well, that's the first thing I've agreed with you all day. I got an idea. Let's both be quiet. But that's not how he intends it, right? He intends it to, we don't know anything. Well, really what I mean is, Job, you don't know anything. You don't understand really what's going on. Because our days on earth are a shadow Shadows and dust. We're here. It's quick. It's life passes by. You better better hurry up and repent before you don't have time. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words from their heart? Will you listen to the teaching of the teachers in the past? Now you notice he doesn't name any teachers of the past or what they taught. He's saying just look back at the guys who taught us in the past. They all told us. The argument is that God's justice is immediate. Was that true? If God's justice is immediate, why wasn't Cain swallowed up immediately after he killed Abel? You guys know the story. Cain killed Abel. What happened to Cain? Immediate judgment? No, what happened? God put a mark on him so nobody would kill him, right? And Cain lived out his days. Because the reality is the nature of God is long-suffering. The nature of God is grace. The nature of God is to give man time 
to repent. But that's not how Bildad sees it. Bildad sees it as, Job, you're being judged because you've done wrong and you need to come clean. But none of us know of any sin that you've committed. We just know there has to be one for something bad to happen in your life. And if we're honest, most of us have felt that way about something before. We look at something happening in somebody's life and we thought, wow, there's got to be something there. But when we look at Scripture, is that what we see? When Jesus took the children of Israel between a rock and a hard place, between Migdal and Pi-Hihiroth, with the Red Sea in front of them and the armies of the Egyptians behind them, two cliffs on either side so they couldn't go right or left, they couldn't cross the Red Sea and they couldn't flee behind them because the army was coming down. God told them why He put them there. He put them there so He could show the Egyptians He's mighty to save. So it wasn't God's mad at them, children of Israel, they're already complaining, they're, so God brings a little judgment. That's not what it was. So we don't always know the whys about what's happening. We don't always understand what's going on. And we have to be careful of a theology of retribution. God's going to get them. Look, God's going to get everybody. Nobody is going to escape. Whatever man or woman or person did whatever horrible thing in their life, apart from them coming to a relationship with Jesus Christ, wherein they are made justified through their relationship with Jesus Christ, they will pay. Payday someday. Every man stands before their maker. Nobody gets away with nothing. But God's judgment's not always immediate. And we can't always justify what's happening in someone's life as God's after him. So we should be careful about doing those things. He talks about cause and effect. Look at verse 11. Cause and effect. The idea is all this is caused by something you did. You with me? Look, can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Cause and effect. Can a papyrus grow without being in a marsh? Can reeds flourish without water? The obvious answer to the rhetorical question is no. They, they, there is cause and effect, right? You guys with me? You did something wrong. That's why this is happening. While it is yet green and not cut down, it withers before any other plant. It's quick to wither. It's not so strong. And so he makes a comparison. This is the description of, of uh, the papyrus in the marsh, okay? It withers. It's not so tough. So are the paths of all who forget God. Now, who is he implying that that is about? He's talking to Job, right? So he's saying... Job, you're like the papyrus. You don't have any strength to stand when things get tough. And the reason you don't have any strength to stand when things get tough, you forgot God. Except that chapter 1 said what? There's no one in the world like Job. Who loved God with all his heart. Right? Who was blameless. Above reproach. Righteous man before God. So does build that right. He can't be. He can't be right. His judgment cannot be correct. And when he says, so are all who forget God, what he's talking about, everywhere in the Old Testament Scripture, there's probably four or five places where they talk about the children of Israel forgetting God. It always, in every case, deals with intentional disobedience. 
To forget God means that you have intentionally disobeyed something that God told you to do. So that's the charge that Bildad's making to Job. His charge is, I don't know what your sin is, but you know what it is. Because God told you to do something and you didn't do it. What is it? But Bildad's not right. Bildad's not correct. And then he goes on with his name calling. And the hope of the hypocrite shall perish. What do we know about, about Job's hope? How is it? Has he got high hopes? Not so high hopes, right? Every time he talks about his life, he says, I, I wish God would kill me. I, I'm done. I'm ready to go home. I'm ready. He don't have a lot of hope for the future. So Bildad, his buddy, says, Job, the hypocrite, loses hope. You're a play actor. You're pretending to be a holy guy. But you're not really holy. So later on when Job says, miserable comforters are you all. You're going to go, oh yeah, I get why Job's saying that. I get it. Because, man, look, if I'm really down, please don't come tell me about all this stuff. Just leave me alone. (laughs) That's why God give me Kathy. Kathy never says nothing bad. She just smiles at me, tells me how great I am. Sometimes that's got the opposite effect because she'll say, oh, that was so good. And I'm like, oh, that's, you say that all the time. But I don't want it different because if she tells me the truth, I don't want to know the truth. Just, just, just tell me the good stuff. We, we want encouragement. The Bible says to encourage, build up, cheer up, stir up. It says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. How many corrupt words is no corrupt word? Is it a few corrupt words? An occasional corrupt word? How many? No is none, right? No corrupt word. Except a word that's going to exhort, build someone up. That doesn't mean you don't rebuke, but it changes the attitude behind the rebuke. You guys get what I'm saying? That's not where Bill Dad's at. That's not what they're doing. He calls him a hypocrite whose confidence will be cut off and whose trust is like the spider's web. So now first he told him he's a papyrus and he's a hypocrite. And then he says, you have no confidence, your confidence is cut off, and you you do not trust in God. He says, your trust is like a spider's web. You have no faith, Job. You guys remember chapter 1? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. After all his kids died. Chapter 2, you remember his wife said, Curse God and die, it's all your fault, Job. And Job said to her, Shall we not receive bad from the hand of the Lord if we receive good from his hand? You speak like a foolish woman. Job has faith. But Bildad says, You have no faith. You know what Job's going to say in, in is it 13? Chapter 13, I think it's chapter 13, he's going to say, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. But Job doesn't have a faith problem. He has a, I don't understand what's going on problem. But he don't have a faith problem. That's why he's God's champion. That's why he's the one to fight the battle. That's why Satan loses in the end of the book. That's why God wins, because Job had faith. Because Job exercised patience. He waited 
on the Lord. And those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. And now what we see at the end of the book? Does that mean Job's perfect? Nowhere does God condemn Job for a word he said. No place. At the end, Job feels a little sheepish about some of the things he said. He says, I'm gonna, t- I would talk to God if I could. And then God shows up and says, okay, here I am. And Job says, I, I, I don't really have anything to say. <laughs> I don't have nothing to say. I'm just, I just sit here and listen. <laughs> Nowhere does, does God charge him with a wrong. So your trust, your faith is like a spider's web. Your confidence or your hope is all ruined. He leans on his house, but his house won't stand. Oh, Job, you're hanging on to nothing. He said, grows green. The third example of nature. He grows green in the sun, and his branches spread out in the garden. His roots wrap around a rock heap. So he's talking about a, 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 a plant that has shallow roots that is growing in a pile of rocks. And it grows up big, and it has these branches, and everything looks good on the outside. <clears throat> it says his, his roots wrap around the rock heap and look for a place in the stones. But if he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have not seen you. The, the roots just plop over, it just rolls over, it dies. As soon as things get hard, it's not able to do it. It's not able to do it. He's saying the, the confidence, your faith, your hope, you have no depth. Your roots aren't deep in the Lord, and so you're going to lose that, that root and be overturned. Then in verse 19, he says, Behold, this is the joy of His way, and out of the earth others will grow. Behold, this is the joy of His way. This is how God works. I'm telling you, Job, this is how God works. Drops a hammer on you evil people, and He blesses us good people. So you better get right. You're crazy. Listen to what he says. 20. Behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold evildoers. Have you forgotten God's justice? God will not cast away the blameless. God won't bring suffering Upon the righteous. You guys remember what we read in Romans chapter 8? I think probably we need to remind ourselves. Let's just flip over Romans chapter 8 for a minute. The concept that God doesn't bring suffering on the righteous. Let's just look. Romans chapter 8. We'll pick it up in verse... Oh, let's do 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or the sword? For as it is written, this is out of Psalms 44, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Does that sound like there's no suffering for the righteous. You, can you find a place where God says, hey, come follow me and you'll never have to endure affliction. God told us straight. 
If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what? You will suffer persecution. So what's the purpose then? Look what he's telling us in in, in verse 8. Yet in all these things, we are not only conquerors, we're what? More than conquerors. So I told you on Sunday, I think that means all of these things we just read about will rise up and serve our happiness. So the sword can't just kill me. The sword sends me to Jesus. The peril, the sword, the famine, the sickness. None of those things destroy me. None of those things ruin me. None of those things. They can bring a period of suffering, but in the end, I stand before my Maker, holy, glorified, without sin, purified in Jesus Christ. That's how he can say you're more than conquerors, for I'm persuaded. What can separate us from his love? Nothing, right? Neither death nor life, angels, principalities, powers, things present or things to come. Height, depth, or any other created thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So nothing can separate us from his love. Not your suffering cannot separate you from God's love. No matter what that suffering is, it never means God doesn't love you. That's not the purpose. Now, if we want to understand then, what then is the purpose of suffering? What is suffering all about? Just since we're in Romans, flip over to Hebrews chapter 12. I still got time to get the six chapters done tonight. Hebrews... Hebrews chapter 12. This is actually a quotation from the book of Job. Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. Does that sound like there's suffering in the life of a believer? A scourge is not a small word for slight discomfort. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons... For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? God disciplines his kids. So, so his kids endure. His kids don't give up. His kids don't quit. If you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. If you can't accept it, if you can't understand that lesson of Job that trusts God, even though he says, well, you're illegitimate. You're not sons. A son understands. And trust his father, even in discipline. I, I, I feared my dad in discipline, but I never was afraid of my dad. Does that make sense? I mean, I knew if I was getting a whooping, I was getting a whooping. If I knew if I, I knew if I'd done wrong, there was a reckoning coming. But I was never afraid of my dad. I love my dad. Still love my dad today. It wasn't, I accepted his discipline because he's my dad. So I can accept the things that enter my life from the hands of God because he's my dad. We've been adopted, right? We can call out, what, Father? 
Abba, Father? Daddy, I need you? It's the same thing that he's declaring here. Furthermore, we had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Shouldn't we trust God? We trusted our fathers. And God's infinitely better than our fathers, right? My dad was in no means perfect, but God is perfect. He is perfect. For they indeed for a few days chastened us to seem best to them. But he, what's it say? For our profit. That we might be partakers of his holiness. It's one of the ways he conforms us into his image. One of the ways he transforms our minds. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful. He's not saying, I don't expect you to be giddy about suffering. But painful. Nevertheless, what does suffering yield? Look what it says. Afterward, it yields the fruit of righteousness. To those who have been trained by it. Suffering brings fruit. Always. Suffering brings fruit. Bildad thinks, no, 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 no. God would never allow the blameless to suffer. Who's the most blameless being ever? And who suffered more than any other being? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We esteemed him smitten by God. When people looked at Jesus, they said, Oh, God's getting him for all them lies he told. Same old charges, right? Same old things that Bildad was shouting to Job. So Bildad finishes, and Job answered and said, Truly, I know it is so. Let me show you. 21 and 22. I skipped it. Truly, I know it is so. He's talking about 21 and 22. He will yet fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the dwelling place of the wicked will come to nothing. He said, hey, God's going to bring about joy again. And, And Job says, truly, I know it is so. I know he is. I know God's, I think Job thinks it's going to happen when he dies in the resurrection. But he, he believes that he's going to see God. We're going to see in a moment. I know my Redeemer lives. That's Job who says that. And I'm going to see him with these eyes. I'm going to look in his face. That's faith. Well, he says, I know this is so, and we have here in, the, in chapter 9, the uncontested sovereignty of God. He's going to talk about the fact that, that God is, is doing this. God is in control. He never charges God with evil. He never charges God with wrong. He understands where all these things are coming from in his life. He just doesn't know why. So... He answers, what man is righteous before God? You guys see it? 
How can a man be righteous before God? He's telling Bildad, you crazy guy. What do you mean that, that the, the God will not cast away the blameless? Who's blameless? Who said anything about anybody being blameless? Who can be righteous before God? Job, before the gospel, before we get to chapter 11 of Genesis, Job is saying, there is none righteous, no, not one. He says, I know I'm not righteous, but I know I didn't do something that brought this on. Because he was living as a man of faith. He was making offerings. He was walking with God. He was, he knew he had a relationship with God. That's why he could say, man, I know I didn't do nothing wrong. Me and God were doing great. All of a sudden, wham, crazy town. But he said, up until that time, man, me and the Lord, things were tight. My kids were tight. Things were going really good. How can a man be righteous before God? And if one, a man, if a man wished to contend with him, God, he, the man, could not answer him one time out of a thousand. So if a man tried to stand before God and, and make a defense, he doesn't really have anything to say. And when Job has his opportunity, we discover that that's true. Job didn't have nothing to say. What's a man going to say before God? Standing before the holiness of God. He, I got nothing to say. He can't answer him one in a thousand. He says, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. So who has hardened himself against him and prospered? If I have bitterness in my heart toward God, how's that make it better? You met people who are mad at God? I spent 13 years mad at God. 13 years mad at God. I was unfaithful to my wife. Almost destroyed my family. Did my best to give my wife and kids HIV contracted HIV myself all during the time when I was bitter, hard-hearted toward God. You tell me, how did I make my life better? Have you ever had a little child who's mad at you? And they're carrying on and they get all crazy and upset and they kick something? Did that make it better? Oh, now you're mad and your toes broke. I remember when I was a teenager being mad and punching a window. Genius. Because now you're mad because you were in trouble and now you're in more trouble because you not only broke the window, but now we've got to take you to the hospital and get stitches. Man, way to go. Does it make it better? Job is saying, I can't be bitter at God. That doesn't change my circumstances. God is right. And I am a man. I'm just saying as I'm on the ash heap and I'm oozing pus all over the place and I'm weeping for my kids that I don't understand what's going on. Is that okay? should be. It should be. Job's saying God's sovereign. He knows what he's doing. He removes the mountains and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. The universe... All creation responds to the sovereignty of God. When Jesus needed a coin to pay his taxes, what did he tell Peter to do? Go fishing. Catch a fish. He tells him all this. Go fishing, catch a fish. In its mouth you'll find enough to pay our taxes. That would be kind of cool if he would do that for me. Jackie, tax time's coming. Go fishing. 
Catch a couple walleye. It'd be fun for me. It might not be fun for you, but I'd be okay with it. Catch a couple walleye in their mouth. Going to be a bunch of money. Pay your taxes with it. All of creation answers to the sovereignty of God. A dead man in the tomb, four days. His body has already begun decomposition. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. What happens? Came out. In the beginning of creation, the angels are sitting in the bleachers. God's got all these amazing things lined up. He's, he's hovering over the darkness. And he says, let there be light. What happens? Now, didn't take a couple hours. It says, God said, let there be light. And light was. Past tense. So, man, all the universe responds to God's sovereignty, right? He shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it won't rise. When did that happen? It's gonna, you know. Joshua's in this crazy battle and it's not actually the sun won't rise, but he, he says, Lord, the day is gonna pass and we're not gonna get all the bad guys. So let the sand, let the, let the sun stand still in the sky. So the sun stood still in the sky. And all the scientists said, oh, is it possible? Is it possible that means the earth had to stop its rotation? Or the sun stopped or something stopped? And if something stopped, everything would blow up. Are you crazy? If God said it, that pretty much settles it. The, the issue is not how did it work out in nature. You don't think God overcomes the powers of nature? How did he walk on the water? How did he say to the storm, storm be still? How did he do all those things that he did? Because all of creation responds to the sovereignty of God. If he tells the sun to stop or the earth to stop spinning, and he don't want us all to fly off into space, we won't fly off into space. That's why he's God. He, he don't, it doesn't require the, the understanding of the scientists of earth to be able to qualify what it is that God has done. He seals the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens. He treads on the waves of the sea. Oh, and that sound familiar? He treads on the waves of the sea? This is Job from Genesis chapter 11. Jesus did it way thousands, several thousand years later on the Sea of Galilee, right? He tread on the waves of the sea. He walked out to the, to the children of Israel. He made the bear and Orion and Pleiades in the chambers of the south. He's saying he created the stars. All the universe reveals the greatness of God. He starts in the north. He moves north and south and east. And then the chambers of the south are the areas of the stars that you can't see because they're on the other side of the earth. So he's saying these are the things we can see, but there's more that we can't see because the earth, there's more stuff on the other side of the earth. Job said that. In Genesis 11. He didn't say, the earth is flat and if we go too far that way, we're going to fall off. He said, there's stars on the other side of the earth. This world keeps going. It's not just this little land that we're standing on. All of the universe reveals the greatness of God. He does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. And then he says, he talks about the presence of God. Look, if he goes by me, I do not see him. No man has seen God, speaking of the Father, at any time. And that means no man ever saw God the Father. 
by Jackie. Well, in the Old Testament, I know people saw God. You're right. Well, who did John tell us that was? The only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He reveals God to us. So when Abraham spoke with God, who was he talking to? Jesus. When Moses talked with God, who was he talking to? Jesus. When there was what the Bible calls a theophany or a Christophany, an appearance of God, where men saw something, a, a being, and then after, after a while said, I've seen God and I'm still alive, what happened? They didn't see the Father. For you to see the Father, God's got to give you new eyes. For you to stand before the Father, God's got to give you a new body. Because you can't stand before Him with that corruptible body. Corruptible must put on incorruption. Right? Isn't that what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us? So, so if God reveals Himself, so He, he says, look, if, if He goes by me, I don't see Him. The Bible tells us that God, the Father, is Spirit. He's invisible. He is the invisible, unknowable God who reveals himself through God the Son and empowers the believer through God the Spirit. But the Father is Spirit. He doesn't have a body. They use anthropomorphisms to describe God. That means they'll use human terms. They'll say, God set out the universe by the span of his hands. The idea is that he grabbed the planets and flung them out. That's poetry. Doesn't mean God has a hand, nor that he flung the stars. It just means God's the one who put it there. You get what I'm saying? We have to describe God in terms we have in our language. We can't just make up words that aren't there. When we get to heaven, we'll have better words. But for now, we got the words we got. He says, he goes by me. I, I can't see him. If he moves past, I don't perceive him. He says, I, 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 I've never seen God. Job's saying, I've never seen God, yet he's the most righteous, holy man on earth at the time, Genesis around 11-ish. Holy and righteous before God, but he never saw him. That reminds you of anybody else? How many of you guys seen God? Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Right? We, we, we can't always perceive His presence. And the purposes of God, they cannot be challenged. If He takes away, who can hinder Him? If God takes something away from you, you can't stop it. You can be mad about it, but you can't stop it. It don't matter how much you spend or how much you fight. If God takes Him away, if God takes her away, if God takes it away, He takes it away. You cannot challenge God's purposes. God will not withdraw His anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate, prostrate beneath Him. The proud who think... I used to tell, hear people all the time, Oh, you know, if I could talk to God, I'd say a thing or two. You know what the Bible says? Every time somebody stood before an angel, what happened? They laid on the ground and wept like a baby. And the first words that had to come out of the angel's mouth, which is infinitely lesser than God Almighty, was, do not be afraid. 
Every single time. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Nobody is going to stand proud before God. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Nobody's proud before God. You cannot challenge God's purposes. And he's saying, who am I to question what God's doing? And then he talks about his reasoning before God because he feels the innocent have no access to God. How would I make a case to God? Look what he says, verse 14. How then can I answer him and choose my words and reason with him? There's no way arguing with God is foolishness. Who am I to argue with God? For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. He's like, oh, I don't want to stand before God. I want to, I just want to beg mercy. Grace. I don't want justice. Justice always ends one way. I want grace. I want the line that says grace. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice, for he crushes me with the tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. God is so great. He's so big. He's so awesome. I can't stand before the Lord. The, the sound of his voice would crush me. Already I'm in the midst. Look at how I look right now. Can you imagine what it would be like if I was standing before God? He will not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness. He's bitter in his soul. Is there a problem with Job declaring how he feels about his suffering? He's not blaming it on God. He's saying, this is how I feel. I feel I'm, I'm embittered. I'm hurting. I'm in pain. I'm confused. Nothing wrong with that. If it was a matter of strength, indeed he is strong. And if of justice, who would I appoint my day in court? If it was for justice for God, who's going to stand for me? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. So what's Job saying? I'm not perfect. I'm not righteous. I'm not without sin. Nowhere does Job say, I'm sinless. God said Job was righteous. Job said, if I was, my own mouth would would prove I'm not. I wouldn't know how to talk to God. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. As soon as I opened my mouth, you would know I'm not righteous. Then Job provides a lesson from history. Remember the guy said, look back to history. Listen to his lesson from history. I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. He says, I don't think I've done anything wrong, but I don't know me. I despise my life, my living. And then listen to verse 22. It is all one. You see that the word thing is in italics. So hang on to it. It still carries understanding, but it's not there in the Hebrew. That's what those italicized words mean. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. So Job says, my lesson from history is the, the, the wicked and the righteous are both, they both die. Everybody dies. Everyone, God, God brings his judgment. No one can stand. If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. Death comes to the guilty and the innocent the same way. 
Nobody is holy and righteous. He's saying, Bill, Dad, you're no holier than me. In fact, in a few chapters, we're going to find out he's less. But you're no holier than me. The, the evil and the dead die. The earth is given to the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of his judges. If it is not he, who else could it be? He's saying God is in control. We get the leadership we deserve. If the wicked are in control, it's because God allowed the wicked to be in control. Because God is sovereign. God is in charge. Now my days, he says, are swifter than a runner. Look, my life is not going to last very long. They flee away and they see no good. They pass like, sh- like swift ships, like an eagle swooping on its prey. So if I say, I'll forget my complaint and I'll put off my sad face and wear a smile. So Job says, so let's just say that I got a short life and so I'm just going to ignore all my suffering. It doesn't solve my problem. He says, I am afraid of all my sufferings. He's afraid. Suffering, occasionally, you know, things happen in our lives that are crazy and we we say things like, oh, it's kind of like Job. Yeah, brother, we're nowhere close to Job. I don't care what you think you've been through, it ain't close to Job. Job is in a whole nother league. His sufferings, he was afraid. He was afraid in that place. He was hurting. If I pretend I'm okay, it doesn't change how I feel. I'm hurting. I'm sad. I'm weeping. I'm broken. I know that you will not hold me innocent. He never claims to be innocent. And if I am condemned, why then should I labor in vain? If you're going to take my life, take it. Why, Why just leave me lingering here? If I wash myself with snow water, that's pure, the concept was pure water, and cleanse my hands with soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. Oh, this is no good, for He, God, is not a man like I am, that I could answer Him. I have no right to question God. He is not like me. Isaiah 55. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are higher than, as high as the heavens are above the earth. That's pretty high. That's the difference between my thoughts and your thoughts, my ways and your ways. He's saying, man, I, I, I couldn't answer him. And how could I go to court with him? And then he, he lays out three problems. Three problems here at the end. There's no mediator between us. This is Job. Genesis 10, 11, maybe 12. You make a case. Job somewhere in all that time is saying, we need a mediator. Do you know that 1 Timothy tells you that you have a mediator? His name is Jesus Christ. One mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ. One mediator. Job says, I need A mediator, but there is no mediator between us. Who can lay his hands on us both? Who could lay their hands on man and God? Only the God-man. Jesus Christ, that's why he came in the flesh. 
That's what theologians call the hypostatic union, the fact that he was fully God and fully man. It's in the first creeds of the church. Holy, completely God, completely man, able to put his hands on me and his hands on God. Whoever lives to do what? Make intercession for us, right? Seated at the right hand of the Father. You have an accuser in heaven accusing the brethren, and you have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, the God-man, the mediator. Job knew he needed one, but he didn't know who he would be. He says, let him take his rod away from me. Do not let me, or do not let dread of him terrify me. You know, I have all this pain and fear. So if I had a mediator, it would help. If I had the removal of my pain and fear, that would help. And then I would speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. But even if I had all those things, I still don't understand. What's going on? Still don't get it. My soul loathes my life and I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Job says, I'm going to talk from the reality of my suffering. From how I feel, from what's going on in my life. The depth of his suffering, the description of his misery. I would say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. God, I just want to know why. I just want to know why all this is going on. Does it seem good to you that that you should oppress? That you would despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh? Can you see me? Or, or do you see like a man sees? Or are your days like the days of a mortal man? Or are your years like the days of a, of a mighty man? What are you like? He wants to understand the purpose behind the things that God's doing. That you should seek for my iniquity and search out my sin. Tell me what I did. Tell me where... Um, if I've done something wrong, show me, tell me. <coughs> Although, Job says, you know I am not wicked, and there is no one who can deliver from your hand. Was Job wrong? Was he wicked? Not according to God. No one can deliver from God. Once you start on me, nobody can get me out of your hand. What, what, how did Jesus say it? I and my Father are one. And if I have you in my hands, no one can snatch you out of my hands. And the Father is greater than me. And no one can snatch you out of His hands. Who's going to snatch you out of God's hands? He says, he says here, there's no one who's going to deliver from God's hands. If you're in His hands, in this case, He's talking about God bringing judgment. It's no different. God don't lose people. It says, your hands have made me and fashioned me an intricate unity, yet you would destroy me? Remember, I pray that you have made me like clay, and will you turn me into the dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, knit me together with bones and sinews? For you, God, have granted me life and chesed. 
the loyal love, faithfulness, tender kindness, mercies. Here it's translated favor. It's the closest thing in the Hebrew to the Greek word agapeo. You, you have granted me life and loving kindness. And your care has preserved my spirit. That's not like a man who hates God. He don't understand what's going on, but he never charges God with a wrong. He accepts whatever's happening in his life from the hands of God, doesn't blame God, struggles with the concept of why, but never alters from that course in putting his faith in God, his trust in God. And these things you have hidden in your heart, I know that this was with you. I know it's you, God. I know you're working. I'm totally submitted to you. If I sin, then you mark me and will not acquit me of my iniquity. If I'm wicked, woe to me. Even if I'm righteous, I can't lift up my head. I'm full of disgrace. Look at my misery. He says, look, I'm submitted to you regardless of of the answer. I know you're in charge. and, And even if I was righteous, who am I to stand before God? He says, if my head is exalted... You hunt me like a fierce lion, and again you show yourself awesome against me. You renew your witness against me and increase your indignation toward me. Changes and war are ever with me. Look, I know God's blessing, and I know God's judgment, and that just leads me to be more confused. Because I don't understand what's going on. I'm suffering. I don't, I don't know what's happening. So why then did you bring me out of the womb? Just let me die. Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me. I would have been as though I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Stop. Leave me alone so that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return to the land of darkness and the shadow of death. As a a land as dark as darkness itself and a shadow of death without any order where even the light itself is darkness. Job uh, is despairing and questioning. And he had three questions. How can I be righteous before God? How could I meet God in court and make a defense? Why was I born He doesn't understand the things that are going on in his life. But here's some things that we pull away from Job. As we look, I'm hoping you can see these things. Even though some of the statements his friends say are, are true statements, they can be false by the way they are applied. Proverbs 26, 9 says that a, that a proverb in the hands of a fool can do more damage than good. Things aren't applied properly. If the, Jesus said it through Paul like this, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, I have not love. It is a clanging cymbal and a banging gong. Although I have all knowledge and I can have all faith to say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. If I have not love, it profits me nothing. It's not about always having the, the words that are true. 
Suffering and prosperity are not equally distributed over the evil and the good. They're not. Third, God still reigns. No matter what. Fourth thing, there is wisdom in God's designs even if we can't see it. And the last, hold fast to God. There is no hope in any other. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved, right? There's it. One place, one hope during suffering. And that is what made Job God's champion. He clinged to God. He trusted God. He had faith in God. He struggled with the wise. But he never broke trust with God. That's why in the end, God's going to say, Job's my champ. Nobody like him on the earth. And that's the challenge for us. How do we respond to suffering? We're not in the place like Job. But ultimately, God wants us to understand those things. When we're trying to comfort people, the truth without love is brutal. The Bible says, speak the truth in love. Truth without love is brutality. Good things don't always happen to good people. Bad things don't always happen to bad people. But God is in control. And God's plans, though we may not understand, there's wisdom in God's plans, and we can trust Him. And that's the point. That's the point.